So what we see next in this uh, letter to Titus is pretty controversial. And it's pretty countercultural as well. And it would have been the same back then too. Uh, Paul was uh, saying something specific uh, to the men and the women of the church. Now in today's society, there's been a, a real effort to break down uh, barriers in gender roles. Uh, there is a seemingly no difference in what a man and a woman is or what they can do. Uh, granted, some of this is correcting prejudice from generations ago. I'm not here this morning to criticize the suffragette movement. That's not what is going to happen. But uh, there are ways in which men and women are different. And our Western society in particular is trying to eradicate that. Uh, if you have a phone, if you've got uh, emojis that you can use, uh, you can uh, use a, a pregnant man emoji. Um, there are uh, women leading churches, and uh, the, those are just two examples I could think of quickly. Uh, we've uh, said before, haven't we, that uh, the Bible clearly teaches two things, that men and women uh, are both equally made in the image of God, but the Bible also says that men and women have different roles. And this is what people find difficult. And as we look at a, a Christian view of what God wants for men and women in, here in Titus's letter, I hope we will see that it doesn't inhibit or limit you as men and women, but it sets the perfect conditions for both sexes to thrive. God sets out parameters and gives instructions to men and women that we might thrive and honor him. Uh, you are not giving a fish freedom by putting it on the top of a mountain and saying, go, come on fish. Uh, and you are unlikely to see the majesty of an eagle if you release it at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, with this uh, in mind, we see that God uh, sets parameters for our good and for his glory. But that being said, we do need to be careful, don't we? Uh, there's a, a dangerous way of reading your Bible. Uh, the Word of God is called a sword. And it's called that for a good reason. Because as well as being able to cut to the heart with its piercing truth, it can also do a fair bit of damage if you handle it in the wrong way. And if we take certain portions of Scripture and uh, divorce them from their original contexts, then what we sometimes have our commands that we will follow because we, we know it's in the Bible, but we don't know how we're supposed to do it or why we're supposed to do it. But the biblical pattern, if you, if you read the Bible, if you read through it, especially in the, the New Testament, in the letters that Paul writes to the churches, uh, the, the pattern is uh, for, for the writer to present good news of what God has done. Then they will argue that because of these truths, you ought to live like this. And then finally, they tell you the consequences of living in such a way. And that is the order of things. This is what God has done. This is what you should do as a result. And this is the consequence for living in such a way. Now, if you remove any of those elements, then we will end up frustrated and confused and living in an unhelpful way. And as we said, we're going to be talking about 
how younger women and younger men should be living faithfully for the Lord Jesus today. And let's remind ourselves of why this letter was written in the first place. If you've got your Bibles open, which would be really helpful, look at the first four verses of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul wants to have a say in the lives of these people, not because he is nosy or in any way invasive, but because of his genuine care for them. Look at that paragraph again that we've just read. It's for the good of their faith. It is because it's true. It's because he has their eternity in mind. It's because this is what God was telling them. These are the reasons why Paul is writing. Uh, It also tells us what God is like. Look at the end of verse 3. He is called a a saving God. God our Savior. So these are the amazing truths which enable Paul to give these commands. Now we're going to see instructions, but also the reasons why the instructions are given. And we looked a couple of weeks ago uh, about what uh, Paul uh, was saying to Titus to say to the, the older men, and the older women, and uh, now he gives instructions to the younger men and the younger women, and also Titus himself. So first of all, what does he say to the younger women? And it follows exactly on from what we were saying last time around. The older women are to give instructions to the younger women, and they are to train the younger women. So what are they training for? Look at verse 4. Of chapter 2 now. Train the young women to love their husbands and children. What do you mean? Why do I need to be trained to or encouraged to love my own husband and to love my own children? Well, I think it's the great honesty of the scriptures, isn't it? It's not always easy to love the ones we have promised to. We're sinners, and so we are always finding new ways and old ones, of course, of annoying and frustrating and disappointing those who we live with. And Titus wants the older women to model to the younger women how to love their families. Now, marriage is not always easy. Uh, the divorce rates are testament to this. Uh, the average marriage in the UK lasts 11 years. And... Uh, if you think that's, that sounds like a, a long time, well, I, I read one uh, psycho- psychology report that argued that the honeymoon period, uh, that unique time in a couple's uh, marriage where everything is, is particularly rosy, uh, lasts on average 30 months. Uh, that's when the survey found that uh, marital uh, satisfaction began to decrease. So with those sobering stats in mind, how do we keep on loving our spouses beyond the 30-month mark, beyond the 11 years, and to the end. 
How do we do this when things are hard, when we are frustrated, and when our expectations and our aspirations haven't been met? And what about those children? Of course, there is an intrinsic love for our children, but how do we show patience and kindness and grace to them? Do you know what the hardest thing about parenting is? The kids. And uh, we need grace and patience and God's help and strengthening as we parent. So in order to love our families, one way we can certainly be helped is through the encouragement and the training from older saints. If all that the younger women in this church see is the older women being apathetic and disdainful and complaining about their spouses and their children and how disappointing they've been, it breeds an unhealthy culture, doesn't it? Older wives, you have faced all manner of, of different and difficult situations uh, and therefore be happy to impart your wisdom to those in the trenches. It might not feel like wisdom, but believe you me, it is. Uh, you've been through the peaks and the troughs and everything in between. And Paul's hope is that uh, these older women would tell the younger women to persevere, to look to God to be their strength in times of difficulty. There were possibly uh, negative feelings towards marriage in, in Crete in these days. If this was the case, Titus needed to encourage the women to have a positive view of, of marriage and family life, to see it as what it is, a, a gift from God. You also, if you carry on in this uh, verse 5, he calls on the young women to be self-controlled and pure. Again, these are things that all Christians should be striving for. So uh, you need to think about what uh, areas of your life uh, and, and what spheres are the temptations uh, for you, uh, for your attention today. Uh, young women in particular, I think, are surrounded by uh, social media posts and articles in newspapers and magazines and trashy books or TV shows, uh, segments on the radio, conversations with people at work with unhelpful standards and unbiblical expectations for women. Now, I don't know where the battles you face are. I don't know which battles it are that you are facing, uh, whether that's on, on social media or at the school gates or just in conversation. I don't know. But there is a palpable sense of animosity and suspicion towards biblical ideals for women. It's seen as boring and it's seen as limiting. Uh, the world is telling you that you need to, to break free from the shackles. That motherhood isn't fulfilling. Faithfulness is boring. Pay no attention to such talk. Self-control and purity are for your good, for the good of the others around you, and it brings God glory when we, through the help of the Spirit, say no to the fleeting pleasures of the world and say yes to God. Another phrase that we see uh, here is for the women to be working at home. So does the Bible prohibit women from entering into the workplace? Is that what it's saying? I don't think it is saying that. Far from it. There are many examples of women who work in the Scriptures. This is uh, what I, I, uh, I found in my study this week, but please do tell me more if you think of any in the week. Um, think of Lydia, the successful businesswoman who sold purple textiles that Paul met 
uh, by the river. There are women who work in agriculture, such as Ruth. Uh, in Exodus, we see uh, women working as shepherds. Uh, in Acts 18, we, we see Priscilla, the tent maker. Um, Exodus 1 speaks of um, Shifra and Puah, the, the Hebrew midwives. Uh, there are a number of places that speak of, of women working as nurses. And if you go to 1 Chronicles 7, this is the most impressive one that I found, uh, you will read of Shira, who uh, built both lower and upper Beth Horon, and Uzan Shira, suggesting that she was some sort of architect or town planner. And then you've got Proverbs 31, perhaps the best example of this. It speaks of a wife of noble character. And uh, the writer praises this archetypal woman as one who does everything in her power to care for her family. But she works hard at home and she keeps her family in order. But this ideal wife also seems to be uh, an entrepreneur. She, she trades and she buys a field and she makes clothes and she sells them on. Uh, we, we, we cannot take this verse in Titus in isolation and see it as a, a prohibition uh, against women in work. This is a good uh, lesson for us all in Scripture. We, we need to let all Scripture inform how we read one verse. We do not let one verse inform how we read all of Scripture. And it's the same with this verse here. But there is... Having said that, there is a biblical emphasis on the home. Uh, Whether that be back in Proverbs 31, where it says uh, of this woman, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Or here, where the women are encouraged to work at home. And that's perhaps what Titus needed to speak into. Uh, For whatever reason, perhaps the culture in Crete was discouraging women from working in the home. Whether it was those... uh, who were pious, uh, saying that uh, childbearing and and marriage had a a negative impact on a woman's spiritual life, whether it was pagans promoting promiscuity and singleness. I don't know what it was, but that is certainly the direction that women are being led in today. And Titus and the Scriptures as a whole is trying to reorient this. Family is good. It's a gift from God. And he calls on them to be kind. Why do you think he calls on them to be kind? Well, it's really hard, isn't it, to be kind with the pressures that mothers and wives face. And that doesn't mean smiling through gritted teeth. That is uh, spirit-helped kindness. And that means to realize why we are here. The Bible tells us the reason why we are here is to glorify God. Isaiah 43 says, Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And you'll know the verse from 1 Corinthians 10, I'm sure. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that is what you were made for. You were not made in order to get married, to have children, to be successful, to be the envy of other women, to be rich, to be famous to have it all together. If some of these things have happened to you, wonderful. But you were created to bring God glory in everything. So whether that's changing the tenth nappy of the day, whether that's finding five minutes to read the Bible, whether that's being a salt and light in your workplace, whether that's caring for your husband, 
whether that's giving someone a lift to church or making a lunchbox for your children or encouraging a friend who's feeling low or witnessing to your neighbor and your friends about how wonderful Jesus is, whatever it is that you find yourself doing, from the mundane to the massive, give God the glory. Do it for him. And that includes this next part, which is challenging. Be submissive to their husbands. Halfway through verse 5, the women are to be submissive to their husbands. Now, we saw in the evening service a few weeks ago in Genesis that a marriage was designed by God. And in order for it to, to thrive, he gave husbands and wives unique and distinct roles within the marriage. Husbands to lead and wives to submit. Now, a wife is only called to submit to her own husband. Um, let's get that straight. Um, other women aren't called to submit to me, and, and um, my wife is not called to submit to other men. That's not what it means. Um, so what does it mean to submit? Well, well, John Piper has a really helpful paragraph in one of his books about what submission is. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's the disposition. It's the um, kind of attitude to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It's an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you are passive and I have to make sure the family thrives. End quote. That's, that's really helpful, isn't it? I'll, um, I'll ask for that to be included in the email because it's, uh, it's good to chew on over the next couple of weeks. Uh, submission does not mean inferiority. Just as God the Father uh, sends the Son into the world and the Son submits to the Father, that doesn't mean the Son is, is, is inferior to the Father. So a wife that submits to a husband is not inferior. Uh, submission is not agreeing on everything. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to have the same hobbies as your husband, the same interests and the same opinions on everything. A submission is not mindlessly following everything your husband says. A husband must not be domineering or controlling with their expectations. Uh, the wife must weigh up what the husband is saying. Is this what the Bible says? If the husband says, I've got a way we can make a bit more money this month, we could rob the banks of Tidach together. You're not to say, I must submit. You are to take what he says and test it with what the Scriptures say. And wives who are married to unbelievers and believers, the same. You ought to desire to see your husbands look more like Jesus, whether that's praying for their conversion or praying for sanctification. And husbands ought to want the same thing from their wives. We want to see our wives look more like Jesus. And submission is not putting up with being mistreated. Submission is not being put up with being mistreated. Um, Almost a third of women in the UK between the ages of 16 and 59 will experience domestic abuse during their lives. That's a, a staggering amount, isn't it? And Christian homes are not immune to it. Um, there was a report from Evangelical Alliance UK that found that one in ten of, of the women that answered the survey had experienced physical abuse 
in a relationship. And t- 7% of the men that answered admitted to using physical force. So let me make clear this morning that submission is not putting up with abuse or living in fear. A husband, whether Christian or not, has made a commitment to love and cherish and to protect his bride. And to hurt her, whether physically or mentally or spiritually, is to undermine or to break those vows. The biblical view of marriage is not one of of intimidation and dominance, but one of loving sacrifices exemplified with Christ and the church. So in all these things, the younger women in the church can follow and thrive. And Paul gives a reason why they are to do these things. Look at the end of verse 5. That the word of God may not be reviled. That the word of God may not be reviled. These instructions are not only for the good of the women in the church. They're not only for the good of the husbands and the children. But it's also so that the word of God would not be reviled. That people would see the joy, the satisfaction, and the faithfulness in the lives of these women. And see that it only comes through the Lord Jesus. Husbands have a God-given responsibility to care and sacrificially love their wives. So what is it that Titus uh, says to the young men? Look with me in verse 6 at what uh, Titus says to the young men in verse... that Titus is to say to the young men in verse 6. And his message to the men is a lot shorter. Not because the men have got it all together, I'm, I, I'm sure. Um, look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men... To be self-controlled. Now, uh, men in Crete in these days lived very excessively. They were brash and they were promiscuous and they were prone to drunkenness and violence. It was a society where men were told they could do anything they wanted without fear of repercussion. Uh, They were living like the gluttonous and hot-headed gods that they had created and that their temples were dedicated to. But the true God is not like those gods, is he? So the Lord uh, calls on the men to be self-controlled. Men of today, the call is the same for you. Whatever aspect it may be that you may struggle to control, whether it is your anger, you lose your cool and you you raise your voice and you uh, allow people to feel your wrath when things don't go your way. Maybe it's, it's lust and your eyes stray towards looking at someone who isn't your wife, whether in person or on a screen. It may be patience that you hate waiting and it may, you may feel that you deserve better and you don't like doing things in God's time. You want it now. Maybe it's with food and drink and you eat more than you need and you drink more than you can handle. Maybe it's your pride and you, you dominate every single conversation that you're in and you put all the focus and the attention back on yourself and you look down upon everyone else thinking that they are worse off than you. Whatever it may have been that have pricked your conscience in that list, it may have been all, all of them, um, can I encourage you that God wants a better life for you than the one that you have dreamt up for yourself? There is far more satisfaction and joy and goodness in Christ than there is in the things that you are chasing after in this world. The Scriptures themselves are a warts and all account of men who have struggled in Similar ways to you may do with your self-control. When we read of Gideon and David and Samson and, and Peter, 
The call for us is not to feel better about ourselves. I never had someone killed so that I could sleep with his wife. I never um, uh, kind of knocked down a building to kill kill uh, thousands of Philistines. Whatever it might be that you are using to as justification for your behavior, that is not how we are to read the Scriptures. You're not to look to them. You are called to put your faith and your trust in the one who is better, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a life of perfect obedience, who was perfect in self-control, who is willing to forgive you when you repeatedly fall short of the mark. And the way that the young men are to see how they ought to live is by observing one of the young men that they can see. That's through Titus's example. So look at with me in verse 7. This is what Paul says to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. What was the best way for people to learn how to live godly lives? Well, surely it was to, to come back to this letter, to, to open their Bibles and to, to read what Paul said to them. And there are other parts of the Bible, of course, as well. But remember, the vast majority of people in these days would have been illiterate. Maybe there was a, a reading uh, a liter- literacy level of about 4 to 5% in society in the first century. And they certainly didn't have access to the Scriptures in the way that we do. So the best way for them to see authentic Christian living was to see it firsthand. To see it in the lives of someone else. Much like an apprentice can get a far better grasp of how to, to fix a, a pipe by watching a master plumber at work rather than reading instructions about it. We watch those uh, who are, um, we read God's word, of course we do. We, we use that privilege, but we look as well at experienced, older Christians. Uh, look to someone who is, a, as it says here, a model of good works. Discern whether that person is someone who shows integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And look why Titus is to do this. End of verse 7. So that an opponent may be put to shame and may have nothing evil to say about us. Uh, There may have been outsiders looking into the church in Crete. They would have been suspicious and negative about what they saw. Why are they like that? It's so weird. They think they're so much better than us. But the pattern we see in Scripture is that when we live grace-filled, Christ-honoring lives, then people will not be able to slander us or accuse us. They can try, but it will ultimately be in vain. Think of some Old Testament examples. Think of Joseph in Egypt, who showed great integrity amidst temptation. Uh, Think of wise and prayerful Daniel in the cauldron of Babylon. Or think of brave, faithful Mordecai in Persia. All of these men were honest and upright and relied on the Lord. And they were treated with disdain, but they couldn't be condemned because they were in Christ. And think of the Lord Jesus himself, of course, who the Pharisees and the teachers of the law bundled through a a kangaroo court. Uh, They tried to sentence him, uh, but they could only use lies. It says there in Mark 14, The chief priests of the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They didn't find any. Pilate 
remember, washed his hands clean of the situation. Jesus was crucified in disgrace, but he was vindicated by his resurrection. There was no sin in him. So may we therefore live lives that are above reproach. If we are united to Christ, if we are in him and are led by the Spirit, then this will happen, won't it? That is the promise we have in Scripture. When we live in such a way, the Word of God will not be reviled. Our opponents will be put to shame and they will have nothing evil to say. May it be true for us here this morning.